Welcome back to Half Torah, the Shir series which explores the connections between the Parsha Shavua and its corresponding Half Torah, thus Half Torah, Half Navi. And here at the database with Rabbi Shua Eisenberg, this week's Parsha's Parsha's Vayetze, and the Half Torah, well, the Half Torah is a quite complicated one. And that is because it is the second Half Torah on record, at least from all the Parsha's Shavua, to be subject to what I'll refer to as regional variants. In other words, a difference in custom as to what exactly is supposed to be read. Largely, the Haftarah comes from Hosea, but we'll see uh, perhaps possibility of another couple of psukim from another sefer being added in. We'll talk about that and the difference between the Ashkenazi custom and the Sephardic custom, and even the Chabad Hasidish custom um, happens to be that when we had the Haftarah shir for Parshish Chayisara, we gave a shout out to the Regional variants, the difference between the Ashkenazi custom and the Sephardic custom for the Haftar for Parshas Vayera, the story of the Shunamis from Sefer Malachim, Malachim Beis in particular, and we spoke about the difference between where the two Haftaras end, how the Sephardic Haftar ends much earlier at a very strange point. We tried to explain the difference and why that difference exists, and now we will hopefully do a little bit of that kind of investigation of the Haftaras for Parshas Vayetze. There happens to be a lot of overlap between the Svartic Haftarah for Vayetze and the Ashkenazic Haftarah for Vayetze, but clearly, since they're not quite the same, there's going to be a difference in emphasis, which we'll have to uh, hone in on and see what exactly that difference is, what one custom focuses on and what the other custom focuses on. But once again, largely, the Haftarah is taken from Sefer Hosea, and Hosea is one of the Treyasar, and the list of Treyasar, at least as it's recorded in most Tanakhs, um, is um, Hosea is the first one that's recorded. It's one of the longer ones. It's not the first time that we're dipping into Treyasar. We saw Treyasar just last week, and Parshas told us the Haftarah was from Malachi, who was the last one recorded of the Treyasar. So now we are um, in the first of the recorded Nevi'im um, from Treyasar. And as we're going to see, there's a possibility of reading Psukim from Yoel, of all places. In fact, maybe we'll start off with just that issue. Um, the Ashkenazic Haftarah goes to the very end of Sefer Hosea, and it says in the art school that some congregations have the custom of adding the following verses from Yoel. So where are these verses from Yoel that are added in? Those are from Perak Bey's um, and they are the, the two psukim, Chav Vav and Chav Zayin. And they come right after the final pasuk, or at least pasuk Yud, in Parak Yud Dalad of Hosea, which says, Whoever is wise will understand these. The discerning person will know them, for the ways of Hashem are just. The righteous will walk in them, but the sinners will stumble on them. So, why might you add verses from Yoel? So, um, the the Mishnah Brewer actually brings down in Tuf Chaf Ches. That's four twenty eight, Chaf Bay is twenty two. So four twenty eight twenty two. He um, the Mishnah Brewer there recommends adding these two psukim from Yoel, um, and the reason is that it's possible to read the last couple of psukim in the Haftarah for the Ashkenazic version of the Haftarah from Vayetze. Um, some might read that in negative light, that the sinners will stumble over the Averis. Now, the truth is, perhaps the reason why most communities don't add these psukim is because 
that is really the fact that sinners will stumble over sins is not really, um, it's, not, it's not necessarily a discouraging ending. Right? The whole point is that we try not to end the Haftarah on a discouraging note. But is it really discouraging that the wise will follow instructions and that the, the foolish will fall because of their folly? Is that something that's discouraging? It maybe has a somewhat of a negative ending, but it's not so discouraging. So perhaps that might be the difference why you would add verses that, um, that end off on a more positive ending. And Yoel, um, I believe, is actually the, um, the next of the Treyasa that's recorded right after Hosea. And the Psukim actually seem to be related to the final theme in Hosea. And we'll, we'll read those really quickly in just a minute. Uh, but the point is that there might be a, um, the, the, the reason for discrepancy, the reason for maybe a machlokus between whether or not you should add these Psukim or not. You might say the question is, is the whole concern that we end the Haftarah on a discouraging note or just the fact that we end it on a somewhat negative note? Sinners stumbling over sin is definitely not a positive thing, but it's not, it's not, not necessarily a discouraging thing, even if it's, a, even if it's negative. It, we wouldn't call it discouraging when sinners mess up. You know, that's their choice. That happens to them. And it doesn't, as long as you're wise, it won't happen to you. So you can read that final message as, you know, it's a matter of free choice, even though it sounds negative at the end. Maybe the fact that it sounds negative at the end is a reason to add new psukim to end off the Haftarah. But our custom, um, I believe, at least the, um, the custom that I'm familiar with, is to not end off with those psukim. But what are these counter psukim in Yoel? So it says, That you're going to eat, and you'll, man, you'll eat and be satiated, you'll praise Hashem's name, who has done wondrously, um, who's acted wondrously with you. He's not going to, and his people are not going to be embarrassed. Basically, the idea being similar to the, pre, the end of the previous Pazuk, that there's no other Hashem, and Hashem's people will never be put to shame. So meaning, meaning you could say that this is just the, the insurance on the final Pasuk in Hosea, saying that, yeah, and guess what? Um, Hashem's people are not going to be among those who stumble over the sins. They're going to be doing everything right. That might be the reason to end the Haftar in that way. But let's talk about what we normally try to talk about, and that is the actual connection between the Haftar and the Parsha. Right? The Parsha is Vayetze. So, um, so let's, um, well, we'll dive into that. And of course, we have to highlight the differences between the Ashkenazic Haftarah and the Svarad Haftarah. And this time we'll also give the shout out to the Chabad Hasidish Dvar Torah, which also um, is, um, has its own stopping point. Of course, we'll do that after I first mention once again that if you enjoy sharing like this on the podcast and want to partner up with us here at the database with the sponsorship, or if you have questions, comments, concerns, or recommendations, or you want to join the database podcast WhatsApp group for free weekend updates and links for every uploaded share, then all you have to do is reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. That's the data bin base B-E-I-S at gmail.com. Okay, so let's take a look at the Haftarah. So the Haftarah, at least for the we'll start off with the Svardic custom because that one actually starts earlier. So according to the Svarn Haftarah, it's, uh, it's from Hosea, and it goes from Parakian Aleph Pasuk Zion, which starts off, It says, My people is ensured by returning to me. It is summoned to the Most High One, but it does not rise in unity. Okay, so that's the first Pasuk, Yud Aleph Zion. And... Apparently, most Sephardim, according to the Art Scroll, end 
at Pasuk Yud Beis. Sorry, so not Pasuk Yud Beis, Parak Yud Beis, Pasuk Yud Beis. So it goes from 11.7 all the way to 12.12. And yet, um, there is another tradition that says, no, the Spartan keep reading, and they, they not only finish Parak Yud Beis with Pasuk Tezvav, but they go into Parak Yud Gimel as well, and they go all the way to Pasuk Hay in Parak Yud Gimel. Okay, fine. And the Chabad Hasidish Minhag is actually to do the same thing, to go, except to stop a little bit earlier. So meaning the, the Svard custom, so some Svardim conclude the Haftorah at Pasuk Yud Beis and Parak Yud Beis. So they go from 11.7 to Yud Beis, Yud Beis. But um, the Chabad will read two more psukim, they'll go to Yud Gimel, Yud Dalad, which happens to be the starting point for the Ashkenazim, Vayivrach Yaakov, stay Aram, that Yaakov ran away to the field of Aram, so we'll talk about that Pasuk very soon, because it's going to be very important for our discussion, and then they read Yud Beis as well, um, which, uh, sorry, Yud Dalad as well, which we'll talk about, and so Chabad will start there, but other Svardim will keep going, and then instead of stopping at 12.14, they stop at 13.5, Yud Gimel Hay. And whereas the Ashkenazim, they start at Parak Yud Beis, Pasuk Yud Gimel, and they go and finish the Parak, go into Yud Gimel, and they'll keep going all the way till the end of Hosea, which is 14.10. So it's a very long Haftarah. Uh, besides for being a complicated one in terms of breaking it up between Ashkenaz and Svaradik Minhag, but the Ashkenazic Haftorah goes once again from Yud Beis Yud Gimel, and it goes all the way to the end of Yud Dalid, which is Yud Dalid Yud 14, 1410. And if you read those two additional verses from Yoel, so you have those two additional verses as well, which are taken from Yoel 226 and 227. So that's a lot. So now we have to try to figure out what exactly is the difference between these Haftaras. So what I'm going to say is we're going to focus mainly on the Ashkenazic Haftarah, but as a special treat, we will dip into the Svaradic Haftarah at the end and give you a little bit of what I find to be very fascinating parallels between the Parsha and the Haftarah. And if I can put it concisely, I would say that the difference between the Ashkenazic Haftarah and the Sephardic Haftarah, and we still have to get into it and see exactly what they're about, but the, I would say that the Ashkenazic Haftarah appears to focus on the content and basic central message of the prophet to Am Yisrael, while the Sephard Haftarah appears to include more imagery from the actual Parsha and the larger life of Yaakov Avinu. So I'll... I'll, and I'll explain exactly why that is in just a moment. But what I would say is, when we consider our learning of the Haftarah, there are really two important questions we have to ask ourselves in that limud, in that learning session. And they're really the two questions that we try to address on a regular basis on this series, and that is, of course, well, what is the Navi saying? What's the Navi's message, generally speaking? Like, just the plain subject matter, the manifest content of the Haftarah, what is the Navi telling us? What, and what, what are his words telling us today? And what was the Navi telling the B'nai Israel back then? 
So there's that aspect of it. And then, of course, there is the Parsha lenses of, of how to look at it. Like, how does this speak to the Parsha? And I think these two questions in general, they overlap when we try to learn the Haftarah, but I think there is a difference in emphasis in this Haftarah between Ashkenaz and Svard, and I would say that, once again, Ashkenaz seems to give more primacy to the actual message of the Navi as it relates to the one point that it mainly shouts out to the Parsha, whereas the Svarni Haftara will, I think, focus less on that message and just throw out as many parallels, shouting out the Parsha as much as possible. And I'm going to give those shout-outs at the end of this particular shear, but I want to just go back and see the Ashkenazic Haftara first, and we'll have a very fun time taking a look at these. Svardi Haftorah at the end. But let's start with the Ashkenaz Haftorah. The Ashkenaz Haftorah um, begins with, once again, this, uh, this, this shout-out to something from our Parsha. So if we're looking at the Ashkenaz Haftorah, which again begins from Yud Beis Yud Gimel, 12-13, so the Haftorah is... One of the lyrical prophecies, and once again it's from Hosea, and it makes an unmistakable reference to the life of Yaakov Avinu, who is obviously the protagonist of our Parsha. And just to get some background, um, at least uh, on Hosea as a Navi, so Hosea would typically address Ephraim. And when we talk about Ephraim, you know, this is one of the codenames for the northern kingdom of the Bnei Israel, which consisted of ten of the Shvatim, which seceded from Yehuda, or the Davidic southern kingdom, and it adopted Avodazara in the process, and why they refer to as Ephraim. So it seems to come from that of Yaakov's grandson, who was the son of Yosef, and it's usually used to describe the northern kingdom seemingly because the royal house resided in the territory of Ephraim, and maybe because the first king of the northern kingdom was Yeruvim ben Nevat, who was from the tribe of Ephraim. Be that as it may, the Navi Hoshea is in the middle of rebuking the northern kingdom for that reason, for the Avodah Zarah, and he evokes the memory of Yaakov's past in that process. The question is, what exactly Hoshea is rebuking the Bnei Israel about that he makes reference to Yaakov Avinu? So let's take a look at the actual reference that the Haftarah makes to Yaakov. And this, of course, is where Parshas Vayetze comes in. The Pasuk tells us, when we, we read it a little bit earlier, 1213, which means, and Yaakov fled to a field of Aram, and Yisrael, who was obviously the same person, he served for a woman, and for a woman he waited or guarded sheep. So obviously the Navi is referring to Yaakov's stay at Lovin's home, where he earned a livelihood and married his wives. And as an interesting aside, the verse itself might even hint to Yaakov's two main wives, Rachel and Leah, as it mentions the word Isha, woman, twice. The first time, where it says that Yaakov worked for a wife, that could have been reference to Leah, whom he married first, after the seven years of labor. And of course, he didn't intend to, um, to uh, marry Leah first. 
But the second Isha in the Pasuk could be referenced to Rachel, the woman for whom he waited, the woman, the Isha for whom he was Shamar. Well, that could be a reference to Rachel Imenu, whom he truly anticipated being with and could only be with after waiting another seven days. Now, again, this is not to ignore the fact that Yaakov's work was primarily intended for Rachel. He ended up working to earn both of his wives, but Rachel was definitely the one that he waited for. Either way, we have in this opening Pasuk our shout-out to Parshas Vayetze right there in Haftarah. And the problem that I would raise here is the problem that we've raised in the past, and that is that this Pasuk, while yes, it certainly does highlight one of the main story lines in Parshas Vayetze, again, it does it unmistakably, but it looks almost like that's the only reference is a shout-out. So, in fact, this Pasuk seems like the only one that actually references anything from Vayetze. Unlike the Svaradik Haftarah, which we'll take a look at at the end, which has a lot of references to Yaakov's life, this seems to really be the only Pasuk. And after this shout-out verse, the Navi proceeds to talk briefly about the Exodus, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim of all things, after it describes the sins of Ephraim. So the question then is, what is the real relationship between Vayetze and this Haftarah? Is there anything more than this one-liner connection that describes Yaakov running away? So in order to answer that question, we have to first understand why it is that Hosea gives Yaakov Avinu this shout-out in the first place. Right, what does Yaakov's life in Haran or Aram have to do with the rest of the Navi's discussion concerning the Northern Kingdom. What is the Navi trying to convey to Ephraim by referencing Parshas Vayetze in this one line? So in order to answer that question, we have to actually take a look at another historical shout-out which the Navi makes, and once again, that is the Exodus from Egypt. Because as was mentioned, right after referencing Yaakov and Aram, the Navi mentions Egypt. It says in Pasuk Yedalid, Uvenavi ha'elah Hashem es Mitzrayim, Nishmar. It says, and with a prophet, Hashem brought Israel up from Egypt. And once again, with a prophet, with a Navi, he, Israel, was guarded. Now, if we're paying attention not just to the reference itself, but to the presentation of this reference, we'll notice that its wording directly parallels the previous reference to Yaakovinu. Before, the Navi had said that for a woman, Yaakov worked, and for a woman, Israel waited or guarded. The Shoresh being Shamarsh in Memresh. Now listen to what it's saying that a prophet took Israel out of Egypt, and, or actually with a prophet, God took them out through Moshe, and with a Navi, Israel itself was guarded. They were Nishmar. So we have this parallel verse, the one parallel verse that draws the connection between Parshas Vayetze on the one hand, Yaakov running away and trying to earn a living and marriage with his two wives. And then on the other hand, we have Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and the Navi that protected us during that time. Now, why is this important? I would say it's important because it tells us that the Navi wanted us to compare the two stories. Yaakov and Aram to the Bnei Israel and Mitzrayim. There's apparently something to be said about the connection between those two. And as it happens, there are contemporary Tanakh scholars, so for example, Rabbi David Foreman among them, who have noted that the themes and texts of these two stories 
Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Yaakov in, in uh, Haran, they seem to parallel one another. If you think about it, they both have protagonists who are exiled from home. They're engaged in bondage at the hands of a crooked villain. The first protagonist being Yaakov, and the second being his actual nation, the Bnei Israel, who are, who are descended from him. And more strikingly in both stories, the Torah tells us that when the enslaved protagonists flee from their respective houses of bondage, whether it's Aram or it's Mitzrayim, so the tyrant hears of their flights and pursues them using the same exact language for both stories. So, for example, in Bereshis Lamed Aleph, Chaf Aleph, 3121, the Pesach says, And it was told to Lavan on the third day that Yaakov had fled. Compare that to Shemosi Adalad Hay, 14.5, where the Pesach says, And it was told to the king of Mitzrayim, Paro, that the, that the nation had fled. Now, even further, and even, I should say, even earlier than these contemporary sources, Chazal drew the connection between the two Banish stories explicitly when they wrote the Haggadah for Pesach. Right? They, they, they wrote Lavan into the Haggadah under the passage of Arami Ovedavi, which originally came from Mikra Bikurim, of course, Dvarim Chavav, Pasuk Aleph through Pasuk Yedvez, where the Haggadah itself compares Lavan to Paro of our Exodus story. And there, the passage itself juxtaposes our forefathers' Aramean past to their progeny's Egyptian bondage. Right? Arami Ovedavi. We were, we were in Aram. But apparently, even earlier than that, so Chazan, um, we, um, we, we see that the Navi intended to draw the connection between our forefather and his progeny in the, the, their times of struggle. So it's not just contemporary, and it's not even just Chazal, but it goes even earlier. It's in the Navi right here. <coughs> we see a parallel clearly being drawn between Yaakov and Aram and the Bnei Israel and Mitzrayim on their way out. So now that we're maybe convinced that the relationship um, between Yaakov and Aram and Am Yisrael and Mitzrayim exists, the question is now, why Hosea's prophecy touches on these two stories? Why is the Navi drawing the parallel? What do they have to do with Hosea's rebuke of the tribes of the Northern Kingdom? Now, as is typical in the Navi, especially in the Navi Machronim, the nation is being rebuked because of they because they've redirected their devotion from Hashem towards idol worship, towards Avodah However, each of these prophets or the prophecies has its own way of highlighting its intended themes. So the themes being highlighted here are of arrogance and ingratitude, which are both displayed by the Bnei Israel at the time. In this context, the Navi mentions how Ephraim angered Hashem by cleaving to the false deity known as Baal, the rain god the false rain god, of course. But after a few verses of elaboration on their Baal observance, the Navi flashes back to the roots of this despicable betrayal of Hashem. Pasuk says, Ki marisam vayizbau savu vayaram libam alkein shechichuni. When they were pastured and were satiated, they were then satiated, and so their heart became haughty, therefore they forgot me. Says Hosea, Parakir Gimel Pasuk which sounds a lot like Vayishman Yishurun Vayivat from Parshas Vahazinu, which says, 
that yeah, we were were satisfied, and then we just forget Hashem. We were too satisfied. The Navi oddly says twice that the Bnei Israel were satisfied. Perhaps it tells that once they were satisfied, indeed, and once they were, I should say, satiated. Once they were satiated, they were satiated. In other words, their satiation was all that mattered to them. Once they got what they needed, there was nothing more for them to worry about. So forget showing gratitude to the one who fed them. All they care about is being satiated. They don't care about the thank you that's supposed to come after. And once they were satiated, they were satiated. And of course they forgot Hashem and gave themselves a pass from observing Hashem's will. And that's where it all begins. And this is a very important theme as it connects to one of the other important events of Parshas Vayetze, the birth of Yehuda, Hapa'am Oda'as Hashem. Chazal teaches the importance of thanking Hashem, expressing our gratitude toward Hashem. Well, guess what? That is the whole reason why we are called Yehudim, why we are called Jews. And what we're suggesting here is that when a Jewish nation turns away from Hashem and serves idols, the starting point is apparently because of a lack of Jewishness, a lack of hoda'a, a lack of thanking Hashem, a lack of gratitude. The question is, how might a lost people humble itself and return to God? So the Navi suggests that they have to actually return to their roots and review their past. First, Yaakov as an individual, and then Am Yisrael as a people. And in both, in both cases, Yaakov as an individual and Am Yisrael as a people, they both started off as lowly fugitives who had nothing to their names. Each could only survive and thrive with the help of assurance from Hashem. And it's that simple. The success and assurance were only attainable when Yaakov, Avinu, and Amistra were consciously aware of their source. Thus, Yaakov prays for Hashem's care in the beginning of our Sidra, and the Bnei Israel later cry out to Hashem in the throes of their subjugation. They each realized that Hashem had situated them as fugitives so that they could understand that their only rights and claims to any of the perks of either this world or the next are only rooted in their eternal spiritual connection to Hashem, the fact that Hashem is there and Hashem's kindness and perhaps your merit through serving Hashem, that's what will enable you to be successful. And Yaakov thus says, that Hashem should become for me a God. That's what I want. Hashem should just be my God all the way through. But Yaakov relies on Hashem as this fugitive who doesn't know what's going to happen. And in the same vein, Am Yisrael as they left Mitzrayim, going into the desert, not knowing what was going to be. They were literally fugitives from a foreign land, and they had to rely on Hashem to get them towards the, their, their promised land. So, with that in mind, we take a look at, once again, the northern kingdom at the time of Hosea, where all of the above was forgotten. Within generations, when the people ungratefully replaced the supreme god of their predecessors with the meaningless idols of their oppressors. Forget the irrationality of the exchange. Forget the stupidity of the decision to trade Hashem for Vodazara. The problem Hosea is zeroing in on is just a lack of gratitude, a lack of Akar Satov. And again, gratitude is the whole basis for Judaism and for the passage of Mikra Bikurim, which we referenced earlier, Arami Ovidavi, where we recall our humble roots and the wonders that Hashem had done for us at the time of our need. That Hashem had been there for the Bnei Israel, rescuing them from all of the troubles of their past. That should have taught even the modern 
Ephraim, the modern northern kingdom, a lesson in gratitude. But unfortunately, it didn't. So why does Hosea zero in on all this? Hosea looks at Ephraim, he looks at the northern kingdom and says, guys, like, like th- what you're doing is absolutely disgusting. The fact that you've traded Hashem away and you've, you've just discarded Hashem Saying like, yeah, like, oh yeah, we don't need this. Whatever, it's a matter of convenience. We don't, we don't, we don't need this. But do you realize where you came from? Do you realize that you were lowly, low, lowly individuals without a home? You were homeless. You were homeless, and Hashem picked you off the roadside from the alleyway. He picked you up out of the dirt when you were Yaakov running away from Esav and Eliphaz and, and Lavan when you were the Bnei Israel running away from Paro, Halalu Avdei Vodazara Halalu Avdei Vodazara Hashem just picked you out of the mud. You were nothing. And He gave you everything. He made you into everything. And this is how you repay Him? That's the Navi's message according to this Ashkenazic Haftarah. We take one line, one line that says, look where you started, look where Yaakov started, look where the Bnei Israel started. The bondage, the slavery, the prisonership, if that's even a word. And what and look how far he's taken you, and look how far away you've taken things. Look how far away you've taken yourself. So in the end, Hashem teaches us what we all know, and that is that we owe a debt of gratitude to Hashem, plain and simple. Yaakov and Aram, the Bnei Shal Mitzrayim, are just paradigmatic of the constant pattern of kindness that Hashem showers us with, both as individuals and as a people, even at our most desperate time. And the beauty of the Haftarah is that it's never too late to express our appreciation. We reference Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim several times a day for that very reason. And this week we remember Hashem's hidden hand in Yaakov's success in Lavan's home. Tomorrow and every day afterward, we'll pay closer attention and take note of the kindness that Hashem is still doing for us at each moment. So we should uh, definitely be zoha to see and appreciate Hashem's constant acts of kindness towards us and show our gratitude through our unwavering devotion to Him. And hopefully, Bezra Hashem, He will redeem us from the bondage once again of Meher B'Amenu. But before we close, let's take a look at the Svartik Haftarah for just a little bit of a treat. The Svartik Haftarah is very fascinating because Although there is plenty of overlap between the Vayetzi Haftarah of the Ashkenazic tradition and the two versions in the Sephardic tradition, the Sephardic Haftarah for Vayetzi actually contains a larger series of fascinating verses containing striking textual references to the life of Yaakov Avinu. It's just a fun read. And I, and I don't want to argue that that's all it is, but the Sephardi Haftarah, once again, just sparks our... Um, our memory bank of stories about Yaakov Avinu, and you'll read a verse and you'll be like, hey, I know what that's talking about. So let's take a look at it, just to give a shout-out to a few of those references. In 12, 4-5, Hoshea describes how Yaakov was holding his brother's heel in the womb and how he was contending with God. It says, Sarah es Elohim, or an angel of God. Both scenes which parallel, of course, Bereshus 25 and Bereshus 32, describing Yaakov's birth, 
Yaakov's battle with the angel. Of course, neither of these two stories are from Parshas Vayetze. The former is from Parshas told us last week. The latter is, um, and not to be mistaken with the latter in this week's Parsha, uh, but the latter, L-A-T-T-E-R, um, is describing uh, Yaakov's battle in Parshas Vayishlach, next week's Parsha. But in that same Pasuk, Hosea says that Yaakov contended be'ono with his vigor, which is also a word that's used to describe both his son Binyamin and his son Reuven um, in different times in the Torah. So we have more connections to Parshas Vayishlach next week. And Hosea continues his expression, Vayasar el hamalach vayuchal, and he contended with an angel and was able, he prevailed, which sounds a lot like Kisarisa im elokim va'anashim va'tuchal, you contended with God and with man, and you prevailed. So again, another reference to Parshas Vayishlach. So you could already uh, appreciate why the Ashkenazic Haftarah didn't go this route, because although these verses beautifully depict the life of Yaakov Aminu, taking, taking parallels right out of the Torah, they're not really Parshas Vayetzeh, uh, at least not yet. So we, we have just different parallels to Yaakov's life. And so it's cool. Um, now we continue in, in 1218, when describing the dishonesty and business displayed by the Northern Kingdom, Hoshea actually uses another key word from Yaakov's past. He says, He says, You are a traitor with cunning scales. Now that word mirma, so we know, appears also in last week's Parshas Parshas Toldos. So we have a lot of Toldos and Vayishlach over here. The Yitzchak told Esau that Yaakov had taken his blessings with cunning with mirma. That was in a Barashas Chav so, the very next verse, twelve nineteen. So Ephraim claims not to have any iniquity in his riches, but that he has acquired his riches honestly with his own vigor. Only another reference to that lashon of own that we find, which was one of Yaakov's key expressions. And then in twelve ten, Hashem says that He will settle Israel in tents. Be'ahalim. Tents are obviously another reference to Yaakov, who was known for dwelling in them. We find that at the beginning of Yaakov's life. So. All of these are references to different checkpoints in the life of Yaakov Avinu. And perhaps maybe that's the point of the Haftar according to the Sephardic tradition. It says, look at the entire you know, panorama of Yaakov's life. And Vayetse is just the center of it. And Vayetse really is held together. It really holds together the first story of Yaakov, Yaakov and Esau, um, you know, part one. And Yaakov and Esau, part two, in Vayishlach, you know, is really, you know, the sequel, um, you might argue that it's part three because Parshas Toldos has, uh, has its own part one and part two, their births when they grow up, and then, of course, um, the, the actual brachos scene. So you have that, those two stories, and then, of course, you have Yaakov and Esav meeting up again in Parshas Vayishlach. But the point is that Vayetze holds all of those stories together, which can maybe be a justification for using the larger story of Yaakov Avinu as it's presented in Hosea in those earlier prakim. Um, is, so maybe that can explain that connection. But for now, if you take a look in Yudbez, Yudbez, twelve twelve, the Navi makes a reference to the two places, to Gilad and Gilgal, who suffered for their idolatrous practices. And it says that their altars were like galim, heaps, on the field. Now these three words, right, they're phonetically similar, Gilad, Gilgal, and galim, and they might all be references to Yaakov's experience in Charem, where Yaakov rolls the rock off the well. The Pasuk says, Vayigal. Similarly, where Yaakov and Lavan make a heap, their gal of stones for their treaty. And of course, 
they even named the heap Galade, which is the same exact letters of Gilad. And if you look at Galade, so Rashi al Torah, he mentions that this is the area, the place known as Gilad. So we see in this Haftarah several references to different points in the life of Yaakov Avinu, and there, you know, the textual parallels, they are definitely attention-grabbing, um, and perhaps, once again, we can appreciate um, the, the, the different messages of the Haftarah, whether it's the message from the Sephardic Haftarah of just seeing Vayetze as the glue between Toldos and Vayishlach and realizing the greatness of the life of Yaakov Avinu and all the battles that he's fought. Or perhaps the message of the Ashkenazic Haftarah, just the idea of where Yaakov Avinu started out and realizing that that should be a basis for humility, not a basis for arrogance. And to latch on to that humility, that humility should lead to the very next natural step, and that is gratitude. Or that, that, that anivos, that anava, should lead to hoda'a of Hashem. And we should be a zocha to, whichever, to fulfill whichever of these haftaras we must in our own lives. And um, obviously there are many ways to do that. But in the meantime, we'll pick up next week with the haftarah for Parshas Vayishlach, where we will see another one of the Treyasar. And until next time, I want to wish everyone a wonderful Shabbos, and thank you so much for joining us here at the database.